Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders at our church. This morning, in our, as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah, we enter the third and final act of Isaiah's book of prophecy. As you can see on the, the map of Isaiah inside the bulletin. <clears throat> in chapters 1 to 39, Isaiah showed us that Yahweh is the only God who both judges and delivers, and he does that judging and delivering through his appointed king. In chapters 40 to 55, Isaiah showed us that the reason Yahweh is the only God who both judges and delivers is because he is the only one willing and able, the only one who's both willing and able to do it. And he does this judging and delivering through his chosen servant. Now we enter the third and final act, and in this last part of the book, Isaiah will show us that Yahweh's judging and delivering brings about a new world. And the agent of remaking this world into a new world is Yahweh's authorized conqueror. Now, where Isaiah's first act was spoken to the people of his own day at the end of Israel's kingdom period, and his second act was spoken to a people long in the future suffering exile at the hands of Babylon's empire, this third act This closing act of the book moves us even further into the future. The projected audience for this section is likely those people of God who have returned to the promised land to rebuild it. And we'll see this shift in audience right in the very first passage in today's text, which speaks of Yahweh's expectations for his house positioned on his holy mountain which suggests that Jerusalem has been rebuilt, or it's in the process of being rebuilt. The aim of Isaiah's first act was to inspire trust in Yahweh. And the aim of Isaiah's second act was to encourage and comfort the suffering people to trust Yahweh yet again. The aim of this third act is to prod the returned people into action that they might persevere in trusting Yahweh. So the flow of Isaiah's book is, first he wants them to learn to trust, then he wants them to find comfort when they trust again, and now he wants them to persevere in trusting. We begin this morning with the first eight verses of Isaiah 56. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 357. And on this day in the the traditional church calendar, Palm Sunday, where we remember the beginning of Jesus' final week before his death and resurrection, Isaiah wants us all in this passage to consider, what are you holding on to? To what will you be shouting, Hosanna, which means, please save us. What will you expect to save you? What are you holding on to? This important question diagnoses whether or not you will be a part of God's new creation that Isaiah is talking about in this third act. Too many of us get our hope and our security in all the wrong places. 
We don't want to feel excluded or insufficient, so we hold on to the positions we've earned, or we hold on to the family we were born into, or the consistency of our choices, or the church we've attended, or the respect of our peers. Ancient Israel had similar instincts, and Isaiah wants both them and us to reconsider the object of our trust. So this morning, we will see on your outlines the call to hold fast and the blessings of holding fast. All of this is to show us that the incurable and the unacceptable will gain entry and a future if they will but hold fast to Jesus. Let me pray and I'll read our passage. Our Father in heaven, please help us now. As we are a people who need help and rescue, we need salvation. We must trust in something. Help us to trust in Jesus, our King, the conqueror who is remaking this world and making it new. Help us, please, to examine the things to which we hold fast, that we might set them aside and grab hold of Jesus instead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, keep righteousness and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. First, let's see the call to hold fast in verses 1 and 2. The point of this whole... passage, these eight verses, is to show us that the incurable and the unacceptable will gain entry and a future if they will but hold fast to Jesus. But of course, Isaiah and his people didn't yet know who Jesus was, so what exactly were they supposed to hold fast to back then? Verse 2 pronounces a blessing on the Son of Man who holds it fast. When Isaiah gives us two case studies 
in, later in the next few verses two case studies of the eunuch and the foreigner, he gets more specific. Verses 4 and 6 both speak of the one who holds fast to Yahweh's covenant. That's what he says in both verses 4 and 6. Now, covenant is a theological term that simply means God's contractual arrangement with his people. The arrangement that he would be their God and they would be his people under certain terms and conditions with certain rewards and penalties for either obedience or disobedience. But when you see the word covenant in the Bible, just think contract and you'll get the idea. In verses 1 and 2 here, Isaiah summarizes the essence of God's contract, God's covenant, in three key principles. The first principle is in verse 1. Keep justice and do righteousness. This is in contrast to the first act of Isaiah's book where he constantly accused these people of both injustice and unrighteousness. But now that they've been rescued from their captivity in the, the second act and their sins have been paid for by God's servant who would die for them, chapter 53... They are to live as new people in keeping with their salvation, to keep justice and do righteousness. This is the first fruit of God's new creation. To illustrate, when you are set free from prison on probation, you can't go back to your life of shoplifting or extortion. You need to live a new life in line with your new identity of freedom and rescue. That's the first principle. Keep on this. Keep justice and do righteousness. The second principle of the Lord's covenant is at the end of verse 1, which is that Yahweh isn't done with rescuing them. He says, soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. This is why they are to keep justice and do righteousness. You see, God's covenant is not only about what the people will do, but it's also about what God will do. He has saved them, but he still has more saving to do. My salvation will come soon. And he calls them to righteousness, but he will eventually provide that righteousness for them. My righteousness will soon be revealed. That's the second principle that the Lord isn't done with rescuing them. And the third principle of God's covenant comes at the end of verse 2, where he says, blessed is the, the one who holds it fast, the one who keeps the Sabbath. That's the third principle, keep the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was the name for the seventh day of each week when the people of Israel were supposed to get a day off from their regular labor. The Hebrew word Sabbath or Shabbat simply means rest. They were to rest. It was a weekly holiday that they celebrated to memorialize, to remember the first week of the world's existence when God created everything in the space of six days, but he rested on the seventh day. But look at how Isaiah now develops this idea of Sabbath. Notice how he explains it at the end of verse 2 when he says, not profaning the Sabbath and keeping, he keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
And with that last line, it's possible that Isaiah is talking about something completely different. So two different things. You keep the Sabbath and you keep your hand from doing evil. But I think it's more likely that the parallel lines of the Hebrew poetry suggest that that last line keeps his hand from doing any evil. That's a development of the previous line to keep the Sabbath. In other words... I think Isaiah is explaining what it now means to keep the Sabbath and now profane it. We need to get this because Isaiah will return to this act of keeping the Sabbath quite a bit in the next few chapters. This becomes an important concept for the new creation he wants these people to become. And it's not because God only wants to make sure that his people sit still and twiddle their thumbs once per week. But it's because God is beginning to use the Sabbath as a metaphor of a deeper reality. He suggests here in this verse that what the Sabbath is really all about is keeping your hand from doing any evil. In other words, on the Sabbath, one day a week, you let your body take a break from its work so that you can teach your soul to take a break from its evil. Your bodily rest on one day each week becomes a picture of and motivation for your spiritual rest from evil deeds every day of the week. The point is simply this. God has rescued his people from their exile in chapter 2, verses 40 through 55. Now in act 3 in these chapters from here to the end of the book, he wants to recreate them into something new. He gives the Sabbath a new meaning. It's not about that old creation anymore. It's about a new creation. The climax of this new creation theme for Isaiah comes in in Isaiah 65, verse 17, where he says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We'll get there at the climax of the new creation. But here in chapter 56, the Lord begins his new creation by remaking his people into the kind of people who will persevere in holding fast to his covenant. This is his call to them to hold fast, living out justice and righteousness, awaiting his salvation and his righteousness, and keeping the Sabbath by resting from their evil deeds. I'd like to draw two implications of this call. First, holding fast to God's covenant is the responsibility of the redeemed. This is the responsibility of the redeemed. Holding fast to God's covenant at this point in the context of Isaiah's argument does not earn them God's favor. They already have God's favor. They have been rescued from their exile Holding fast to God's covenant is now how they show themselves to be God's rescued people. And so we too have a responsibility as the redeemed to hold fast to Yahweh's covenant. Though I'll explain shortly that the thing to which we must hold fast changes when Jesus comes on the scene and redefines it around himself. That's the first, first implication is this is the responsibility of the redeemed. The second implication is that this call to hold fast redefines what it means to be God's people. 
It redefines what it means to be God's people. Isaiah is shifting definitions here to show that not all who are in Israel are truly Israel. The mark of a true Israelite, the mark of one of Yahweh's covenant people is not parentage or ethnicity, but it is perseverance in commitment to Yahweh's covenant. That's what makes someone a part of God's special people. And this is exactly where Isaiah goes in the remainder of these verses. God's new creation begins when he recreates his people. He redefines what it means to be a part of his people. And this definition brings about great blessing for the world. So in verses 3 to 8, let's look at the blessings of holding fast. The first blessing comes in verses 3 to 7, which is the reversal of fortune. The reversal of fortune. Isaiah describes this reversal through two case studies. He discusses the case of the foreigner and the case of the eunuch. Both of them have severe problems. Look at verse 3. The foreigner is unacceptable. He's inclined to say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. That's what he's inclined to say. I'm unacceptable. But... Things are changing. Let him not say that. The eunuch is incurable. He's inclined to say, Behold, I am a dry tree. The end of verse 3. I'm a dry tree. In other words, I am dead with no life. I can bear no fruit. But he must not say that because things are changing. Their fortunes are about to be reversed. And so he now addresses them in the reverse order that he introduces them in verse 3. The incurable gain a future in verses 4 and 5. He speaks first to the eunuch. And a eunuch was a person who had his sexual organs removed. Typically, this was done so that he could be undistracted in his service to a king or other official. Without a sexual appetite or activity, he could dedicate himself completely to the affairs of state. Some eunuchs were simply born that way. Others were surgically made that way. But either way, it is impossible for the eunuch to settle down and have a family. There is no possibility for procreation. This is what is meant by the dry tree in verse 3. And this is terrible in the ancient world because your children are your life in this culture. Your children are your only hope for a future. Without children, you are doomed to poverty and obscurity in your old age. There's no one to take care, care of you. And without children, you have no respect. You have no advancement. You have no life. You have no value in society. There's nothing you'll be remembered by. There's no lasting contribution for you to the society in which you live. Now, I think it's difficult to explain this ancient cultural norm of eunuchs and the impact of that to 21st century Westerners because we think so differently about children and about the future and about human dignity. The best I think I can do is to tell you about the young Middle Eastern man who lived with my family last year. We, we got into a conversation around the dinner table one night 
about families and children and about birth control and about differences between Eastern and Western cultures. And when I told him, I described to him the relatively common practice uh, among American men to get a vasectomy when they decide they are finished with having children. This international student nearly fell out of his seat. He had never imagined or heard of such a thing. And so for fun, I asked him if he would ever consider having this procedure done. And he gave me a look of such horror and shock that he could barely squeak out the word, no, unthinkable, unthinkable, because that would mean losing your life. His attitude toward losing the ability to have children might have been akin, maybe, to him asking me if I would ever consider taking to Las Vegas my 401k, my IRA, my mutual funds, my employment contract, and the deed to my house, and throwing them all down on a single spin of a roulette wheel. Would I ever consider such a thing? No. Why would I throw away my life and my future? But Yahweh says in verse 4 that if the eunuch keeps the Sabbath, remember if he refrains from evil, and if he chooses to do the things that please Yahweh, and if he holds fast to the covenant, then in verse 5, he will get a monument and a name within Yahweh's house better than sons and daughters. The point, the person who is incurable, who cannot have children, will have something better than children. The person who has no life, by holding fast to Yahweh's covenant, will gain the best life. He will have a future in the house of Yahweh, with Yahweh's people, he will be remembered and have a monument to his name. This is maybe like saying the person with a learning disability who holds fast to Yahweh's covenant will be given something better than a PhD. Or like the war veteran with an amputated leg who pleases the Lord will be given something better than a gold medal in track and field. There is a future for the person with incurable sterility. Yahweh is making a new creation. And his people in this new creation are no longer defined either by their ancestry or by their descendants. They are defined by their hearts of faith and their obedience to the covenant. The incurable gain a future. The second reversal of fortune is that the unacceptable gain entry. Verses 6 and 7 now speak to the foreigner, this second case study. And by the foreigner, he could mean either the God-fearing person living outside the promised land of Palestine, or he could be talking about the immigrant living within the land who's attracted to the God of Israel. Either way, This is a person who cannot trace their ancestry 
to the 12 tribes descended from Jacob's 12 sons. There is no physical connection from this person back to Abraham, the founding father of the people of Israel. There is no physical connection to that chosen and precious line of descent. Yet, in verse 6, these foreigners have joined themselves to Yahweh, probably at great cost to themselves. They have relocated or they have rejected their tribal deities. They've turned their back on the values and the priorities of their family and their culture. They have chosen to serve Yahweh as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And once again, this is summarized as keeping the Sabbath, as holding fast to the covenant. And in verse 7, these foreign peoples will be brought to Yahweh's holy mountain. They will be made joyful in the house of prayer. And they will offer sacrifices on his altar. Notice the progression here. They come not only to the mountain, but up to the house itself, the temple of the Lord, and within that house to offer sacrifice on the altar. Because, we're told, God's house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's family is big enough and it is vibrant enough to include anyone from any nation who wants to ally themselves with the Lord. Now, these immigrants were considered unacceptable to the people of Israel. They were worse than second class. They were outsiders. They were considered rabid and dirty like dogs. But to the Lord, they are precious. This is what he put the nation of Israel on earth for, to be a welcome wagon to people from across the globe. Some of you here today grew up in Christian homes. You've been walking with Jesus in some cases for decades. You've been around the Bible. You've read it time and, and time again. You know the stories. You've memorized portions of it. You can refer to, to theological topics and you can apply the Bible's ethics to life situations. These things are all great, great blessings and we should praise God for them. But please be careful because your history and your pedigree will not keep you within God's favor any more than those things got you into his favor to begin with. You must hold fast to his covenant. You must persevere in trusting the Lord. Don't ever forget what it means to be his people. It's not about what you have done or where you have come from. It is about holding fast to his covenant. Some of you here today are very new to Christianity. You've only really heard about it or understood it in the last few years. Maybe you still feel terribly confused when we refer to figures such as Abraham or Isaiah. And you're like, is that the guy who spoke to the burning bush? Or was he the one that survived the great flood? No, he's in there somewhere. You may be tempted to feel like you've come late to this party or that you are in some way unworthy in comparison to those who have been around it longer. 
but these things are not true. You are as much a part of this church and a part of God's family as I am. If you hold fast to the covenant, turning away from evil and trusting the God of heaven and earth with your life. Now to the children I want to speak and to the teenagers, you need to know that the fact that you are growing up in this church or in a Christian family doesn't by itself grant you entry into God's kingdom any more than climbing a tree makes you a squirrel or walking into the United States Capitol building makes you a lawmaker. You still have every opportunity to throw it all away and to give up all those blessings if you take it for granted, if you fail to hold fast to Jesus and to pursue justice and righteousness, if you look at yourself, if you look inside for truth and you start worrying about and living for yourself instead of our Lord Jesus. To all, I say, please hold fast. But please make sure you hold fast to the right thing. Not to a set of rules, but to a person. Isaiah talks about holding fast to the covenant, about keeping the Sabbath. Centuries later, another group of men would write down more of God's words for us. We call it the New Testament. And they would tell us about a curious gentleman who went around doing good for a few years before he got himself executed as a threat to both the Roman Empire and the Jewish religion. And it was astounding what this guy had to say. His name was Jesus, and he claimed to be himself the bringer of Yahweh's kingdom. He claimed that the Lord's covenant was expressed and embodied in his own blood, which would, he would shed when he died. He called it the blood of the covenant. And he proclaimed that the real way to keep the Sabbath was to find rest in him, to come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. It was not only, keeping the Sabbath is not only to rest from doing evil, but even also to rest from doing good, to stop trying to please God with your own actions. Jesus claimed that he alone was able to do all that would please God. And he claimed that those who trusted in him would gain, they would enter God's kingdom and they would have a future. He took all those promises to those from Isaiah who hold fast to Yahweh's covenant. And Jesus said that those promises are now for those who hold fast to him. He actually got really mad when people conducted business within God's temple, God's house, on God's holy mountain, and when they did so in a way that kept the outsiders on the outside and prevented people of all nations from coming to pray and find acceptance. Verse 7 of Isaiah 56 is quoted in Matthew and Mark and Luke when Jesus flips the tables in the temple right before he died. The point, friends, 
is that we cannot gain entry and a future by holding fast to a set of moral standards in Yahweh's name. We gain entry and a future only by holding fast to the person Yahweh sent to bear his name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I have been very challenged by this passage, preparing to preach it for you. I've been praying for you all, and I've been praying for myself. Because I've recently found myself, many times, getting so mad when I feel disrespected in different situations. And this shows me that what I'm holding fast to is my own status and my reputation. I'm challenged anew to set aside my self-righteousness and to identify fully and exclusively with Jesus. And then you know what? I can take some disrespect because I've got a future and entry into his kingdom. I've been incurable and unacceptable for most of my life. I was never the popular kid in school. I, was, I have yet to be the wildly successful musician or missionary I've often dreamed about being. And yet the Lord has never separated me from his people. And he has never doomed me to live a barren and fruitless life. So friends, please don't base your confidence on your history or your performance or your pedigree or your status. Hold fast to Jesus Christ and don't ever let go. Make sure you welcome the incurable and the unacceptable who likewise hold fast to Jesus because there's one more blessing to keep in mind. Verse 8, the promise of still more. The Lord Yahweh who gathers the outcasts of Israel is still not done. He assures us in verse 8 that he has more folks to gather besides those already gathered. And the blessing is that if you hold fast to Jesus Christ, you get to be a part of this gathering. He has put you where you are, in your workplace, in your classes, in your family, in your neighborhood, so you can help him to gather the remaining eunuchs and foreigners whom he desires to draw in. Perhaps some of you visiting with us today don't yet hold fast to Jesus Christ. You do not yet trust him with your life. Now is your opportunity. Please, please reconsider your source of confidence. You likewise will never find acceptance because of your history or your performance or your education or your status. But you can find acceptance because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, which makes God's righteousness available to you. You can find a better future than a PhD. And you can find a better acceptance than a frat party or a promotion or a publication. Grab hold of Jesus Christ and find out how he can make even you into a new creation. The call to everyone is to hold fast to Jesus Christ. The blessings of doing so are to reverse our fortunes and win still more. It matters not who you are, where you come from, 
or what you've done, the incurable and the unacceptable will gain entry and a future if they will but hold fast to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you sent to bring your kingdom. And he entered Jerusalem as, as the king, the, the conquering king, uh, to, to come to, to his death where he could pay for our sins and make all things new. I pray that you would please help us to persevere in holding fast to him and never letting go. May we love you, and as we do this, may we recognize how incurable and unacceptable we have been, that we might welcome the incurable and the unacceptable among us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.